0: City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10:30 a.m. at 1211 First Avenue North on the third floor. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks has a habit of making movies where everything goes wrong with his travel method. Uh, think about it. He plays the airline pilot who hits the goose uh, over the Hudson River. Things do not go well as he travels. He is cast away in an airplane crash and ends up living for years on an island by himself. Things do not go well as he travels. He is rocketed into space where things go wrong for him. Again, don't travel with Tom Hanks. But I I was thinking about it this week, specifically uh, the movie Captain Phillips, where he is the uh, captain of a large ship that is boarded by pirates. And there's a moment in that movie as the ship is being taken over by the pirates, where one of the pirates looks at Tom Hanks, who is the captain, he's Captain Phillips, looks at him and says, look at me. Tom Hanks says, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at you, no, no, look at me, look at me. I'm the captain now. I'm the captain now. And I I love that part of the movie, because for me, there are so many times in my life where I want to look at a problem or a situation, and I want to tell that problem, that situation, that person, that child, look at me, I'm the captain now. I'm the one who's in charge here. I mean, think about it in your life. How many times have you had a stressful time at work and you want to look at your boss or you want to look at something that's going on in your life and you feel like if you could just grab your boss by the shoulders and tell him, look at me. I'm the captain now. I'm going to tell you how this is going to go. Or how about in your relationships with others? How many times have you been frustrated by somebody? How many times have you been frustrated by your lack of a relationship and you want to look at these problems and say, look at me, I'm the captain now. Any parent immediately knows that this is pretty much the refrain of your life to no avail sometimes with your children we want to do the same thing with our financial situation too, don't we? Look at me, debt. I'm the cat. Um, You see, what that movie and that scene shows us is something that is buried inside of our hearts. And that is our love for, our desire for control. All of us in big ways and in small, have this thing that's seated inside of us that looks at a situation and says, I want to be in control of this. I want to be in control of my finances. I want to be in control of my relationships. I want to be in control of my children. I want to be in control of everything that happens to me at work. And so we pursue any course of action to keep that control. But this desire for control, this desire, frankly, to be God, doesn't just extend to the external situations of our lives. It's also hardwired into the way that we approach God. You see, more often than not, what you and I want is to be the patrons of grace, not the recipients of grace. I want to be the person who gets to say where grace goes, not the person who receives grace. I want to be in control of God's blessing, mostly because I want it to fall on me. Maybe I'll pray for you occasionally when I think about it. But most of the time, the reason I want to be the patron of God's grace is because I want to hoard it uh, for myself. I want all of this grace to come to me, and I want to do it in such a way that I'm in control. If you've been here at City Church over the past few weeks, a few months really, we've been walking through the life of David. And as we walked through the life of David, especially in the book of 1 Samuel, what we kept coming back to, the kind of refrain of 1 Samuel was, listen, you're not David. You want to think you're David, but you're probably Saul, or you're probably somebody else in the story. But something interesting happens in 2 Samuel. The chorus, the refrain of, you're not David, you're the other bad guy in the story, changes. Because as we get to 2 Samuel, All of a sudden, we start finding ourselves more and more in the character of David. And today, we're going to find just that. So what I want you to do is stand with me, and I'm going to read 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as I read it together out loud with you, uh, you can follow along quietly, but the words will be there on the screen, but I want you to listen and see if you can begin to hear how we are like David. In this, So would you please stand with me as we read 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling place. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel? But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In accordance with all these things, with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make it to make you a servant, know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our eyes, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you have redeemed, for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods, and you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever and you O Lord became their god and now O Lord God confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken and your name will be magnified forever saying the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with all your blessings, so the house of your servant be blessed forever. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So it's interesting that all of the sort of action of this story happens in just a couple of verses. But what we have is two sort of long speeches. But the setup for this story is this. It seems that David is is sitting on his porch one night with the prophet David, with the sort of religious leader of his time. And you can just sort of see them almost in Cracker Barrel-style rocking chairs overlooking the city. And David is in his palace, looking out. And it's almost as if he says, you know what? Here I am in this palace. And look over there, Nathan. You see that tent? That tent is where God's presence resides. I'm in a palace. God's in a tent. Let's fix this. And what's Nathan's response? Nathan's response is the response of just about every minister when somebody says I want to build a bigger church for you and pay for it go ahead knock yourself out David God has been with you this whole time go ahead and do it again but then God comes to Nathan that night and says here's the thing tell David nah tell David no that's not what we're going to do which is interesting David has been the God after, or the man after God's own heart. He has been the one who continuously through 1 Samuel has made the righteous decision, has painted us pictures of Jesus. And now he says, I want to build a temple. I want to build a house for God's name, a place for him. And God says, No. Why? interesting that this is connected to the way things worked in the time of David. You see, there was a a historical precedent for what David was asking for. Uh, One of the best examples of this is King Tut. Most of us have heard of King Tut, if not from sort of children's rhyming songs and, and things like that, but we sort of understand that King Tut was kind of a big deal as a pharaoh. But what's interesting, as you read the story of King Tut, who, incidentally, um, had scoliosis and only reigned for nine years, Um, when you read the story of King Tut, what you find is this, that King Tut came to power. And what King Tut did is he changed the main god of Egypt from the god Achen to the god Ra, or Amun, same thing. And King Tut said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a temple to the god Ra. And so he does. He sets his people out. And after he has, he has conquered all his enemies, they build a temple to Ra. And do you know what the stories out of Egypt said? Because King Tut built Ra his temple, Ra blessed King Tut the same pattern happens over and over. As you read sort of through the histories of the kings of the Syrians, of the kings of the Philistines, what they would do is, as they came to power, they would build a temple to their deity. And then that deity would be in their death and would bless them. You see, what's interesting is that David seems to be looking at God and saying I'm the captain I'm the one who's in charge I'm going to build you a temple God so then you'll bless me how many times do our lives follow that same pattern? we become Christians and we decide that we're going to do something heroic for God. We become Christians and decide that we're going to make the right decision. And what do we expect God to do when we make that right decision? God, give me the things that I want. God, I'm a Christian. I'm going to make... I, I'm God, I'm going to quit this sinful habit. And we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we quit our sinful habits... And then we look heavenward, waiting for everything we want to be granted to us. We treat God as if he is some sort of moral genie. Who if we just apply the right rub on the lamp of enough good works, we will get three wishes. Now, it's easy for us in our mind to go, oh, no, no, that's, that's not us, Justin. That's, that's those people on TV who have the jets. That's the sort of, like, character of Christianity where it's those people out there who are asking for money. It's, it's those people out there. But step back and look into your heart. How many times have you followed God's law? And expected Him to repay you. You see, our heart's tendency, our self-righteous tendency that we were talking about before, wants to put God into our debt, so that we can control His blessing. Because if I can control God's blessing, I can control my. If I can build a house for God, God will owe me and my kingdom will be well. But as we read through this passage, what does God say to David? When David says, I want to build you a house, God, God says, nice try, not going to happen, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to build you a house, David. Did you catch there how the, the, the thing got flipped? How the story got upside down. David says, God, I'm going to build you a house. God says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And he's playing on this word house. It's the, the same in our language, right? House can be a physical place, right? A place with a roof where your family lives, but it can also refer to your family itself that lives inside the house. David says, I want to build you a roof, God. God says, I'm going to give you a family you see God's grace comes to us not based on our obedience to his law God's grace to us is independent of our obedience and that's hard for us because what I want to be able to do is have some sort of spiritual calculus wherein I can control the grace of God God says to David, No, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And the way that I'm going to do this is by making a covenant with you. You see, this story... This chapter in David's life and chapter in our Bible is sort of the apex of the story of David. And in many ways, the sort of climax of the story of Israel in the Old Testament. God has made promises to Adam that he is going to call out a people. He has made promises to Abraham that the people will come from you, Abraham. And he's made promises to the people of Israel at Sinai that I will give you rest from your enemies. I'll give you land. I'll give you my name and now he says to David it's not just from all the people like I sold to Adam it's not just from the people of Abraham David this covenant that I'm making is coming to you and to your house and this covenant that I'm making is a miraculous unbreakable promise that's what a covenant is oftentimes hard for us to wrap our minds around a covenant for a couple of reasons one we don't really have anything in our culture like a covenant a miraculous, unbreakable promise one thing that we have close to it is marriage, which is a covenant, but because of the way things have gone in our culture we don't treat it as an unbreakable promise do we? Right? The, you can all sort of know the statistics that are thrown around about divorce and all of that. We sort of, in our culture, tend to take marriage as a probably temporary agreement, but maybe not. I'm hoping it's not, but if things go wrong, there's always a way out. And we don't treat it as a miraculous, unbreakable promise, which is what it is. And so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around something that cannot be broken. But it's also hard, because when we talk about God making a miraculous, unbreakable promise to us, it does something to us. It makes us debtors to God. Because what part do I play in God making a covenant to me? I am a recipient of it, not a patron and so when God makes a covenant with me when he makes an unbreakable miraculous promise with me I am a recipient and therefore a debtor and for us we don't like being a debtor we like being a patron would you rather owe somebody money or have somebody owe you money would you rather owe someone a favor or have someone owe you a favor? All of us would answer those questions. I, I want people to owe me favors. I want to be in control of the terms of my relationship. I want my boss to think that I'm the best worker. I want everyone to be in my debt. And God's promise comes along and says, No, you will not be the patron of this grace. You will solely be the recipient of of it. And that's hard for us. Because that sort of grates on our sort of sense of self-control. It grates on our sense of self-achievement, of self-determination. Which is kind of exactly what it's supposed to do. But I want to talk for just a minute about this covenant. Because there are three kind of elements in the first half of this chapter that are pointed out, that are, that are emphasized. And that is that God is going to make David's name great. He's going to give him a name. He's going to give David and his people a place. And he's going to give David rest. He's going to make David's name great. And you think about it. Most people across the world know who David is to this day. He is memorialized, not just in sort of Christian areas, not just in Jewish culture, but around the world. It is no surprise that one of the most recognizable statues in the world of all time is the statue of David. Right? It is that gorgeous statue. His name was made great, but not just that. He was given a place. For the first time since Joshua led the people of Israel into the Promised Land, it was under David that they finally were united and in control of the entire Promised Land. And not just that, he was going to give David rest. David had run from his enemy Saul for years. He had camped out with the Philistines. And then when he finally became king of Israel, he almost had to go reconquer the entire land from the tribes that didn't recognize his legitimacy as king. David has not had rest. And yet now, David is being given rest. But if we just stopped and said, Neat, God made a covenant with David. Let's move on. We would miss the real beauty of this passage. You see, God says, not just, David, I'm going to do this for you. But as we read this in light of the New Testament, we begin to see that these promises ultimately weren't fulfilled just in David. They weren't just fulfilled in Solomon building a temple for God. That these promises are pointing us forward, are reminding our hearts of the ultimate Son of God. Of David, You see, it's interesting that both Matthew and Luke give us the genealogy of Jesus. And who do they both point to as the centerpiece of this genealogy? It's that Jesus was a great, great, fill in the number of greats, grandson of David. That ultimately, these promises that were made to David's offspring were made to David's offspring singular. That is Jesus. And it's interesting the way that this works in the life of Jesus, too, because what does Jesus receive? He receives a name Messiah, or as the Greeks called it, Christ. That Jesus receives a place his gathered people. This is why the Bible says when two or three are gathered together, Jesus is in our midst. It's because we are the place of promise given to Jesus. And not only does he receive a name and a place, he receives rest. See, when Jesus had fulfilled his mission of dying on the cross, of fulfilling all of the Old Testament law, and all of its promises, what does Jesus say on the cross? He says, It is finished. His work is done. His rest has begun. And the Bible shows us this again. 50 days later, when he ascends to heaven, does he ascend to heaven and stand by God to continue to work? No, we even said it in the Creed. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. His work is done. His rest has begun. But the beautiful thing about Jesus' work that he has finished and accomplished is that it gathers us, his people, into his covenant family. You see, we are the recipients of all of the righteousness that Jesus earned in his life. It's interesting that this passage says... uh, uh, and David, that David, when your son commits iniquity, he will be punished with the rod of men and stripes. And that's what all of us deserve for the ways that we've sinned. But it's interesting that Jesus never committed iniquity, Jesus upheld the whole law and yet received punishment and stripes. Why? Because those were the stripes that you deserved. That was the punishment that he was bearing on our behalf. It's interesting that Isaiah 53, this psalm of the suffering servant, harkens back to this passage. So as we think about what Jesus has done on our behalf, we're reminded that he has taken the punishment for us. That his grace that he has won for us is not just grace that God just gives us willy nilly but that Jesus has secured with his life and his death. So what does David do in response to this? David hears this from Nathan it's very interesting that the first thing David does is goes and sits down. Why? Because sitting down in awe and wonder, stopping in awe and wonder, is exactly the response that we should have to God making a miraculous, unbreakable promise to us. God, the Holy and Righteous One, has stooped to love you and make an unbreakable promise to you. If that does not take you aback, if that doesn't make you stop a little bit, pause and think, I'm not saying it well enough. Because that's the response our hearts should have when we realize how great the covenant promises of God are to us. But not just that, we see in David our response. That first we're moved to worship his name. As I read through the second half of that passage, you can catch how often David was repeating, O Lord our God, O Lord God. Because when we understand the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection on our part, the good news of God's covenant to us, we're not only taken aback, we're not only given pause, but we're moved to worship. And from where we are moved to, to worship, we begin to see our interaction with others in a new light. Because all of a sudden, I'm not just interacting with other random people. All of a sudden, this is God's place. Not only do I worship His name, but I love His people who are His place. And finally, I rest. I rest from trying to prove my worthiness our serving of Jesus flows from our gratitude of how good God has been to us, even though we don't deserve it. So that we no longer try to work to earn God's favor, but because we know Jesus has already given us God's favor, we, in gratitude, live a new kind of life. May God begin to do those things in your heart and mind this week.